Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton. The levels are set. The mics are ready. Testing, testing, one, two, three. So strap yourself in. It's time to go one-on-one with Bill Alexander. Let's go. Yours truly, William Eric Alexander. All my friends call me Bill, and welcome to One on One with Bill Alexander. Hi, everybody. I hope everything's going fine for you on this beautiful day, no matter where you may be and no matter when you are listening. I'm glad you could join me. Hey, on the phone line, actually, I should say this on the video feed. I'm still not used to doing video yet. Uh, on the video feed, we have a comedian with us today, and we've talked to many comedians over the year. Uh, last week's guest was uh, Anna Vicina, who who's uh, also a comedian, but this gentleman is a comedian and he has written a book and he's done a podcast and he's done all this stuff, including teaching a course. So on the uh, video feed right now, we have Scott Edwards. Scott, how are you doing today? Oh, just so excited. I'm here one-on-one with Bill. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm (laughs) Scott Edwards. Well, thank you. Thank you. That was really unnecessary. Okay, that's enough. And uh, really uh, excited to be on with such a, a high profile podcaster. Thanks so much for in- including me with your you and your listeners. Well, I, I, I found you a couple weeks back and I was go- go- going over your website and noticed that you've been basically, I think I, I think the way you say it is celebrating 40 years on the fringe of show business. So you've been standing on the outside looking in. Is that, is that what I'm getting here? Well, well, yes, and you got that exactly right. So uh, one thing I want to correct you on, just so your audience isn't misled, I am not actually a comic. Okay. Uh, some people say I'm funny, but I've been producing comedy <laughs> events and shows television and radio special concerts for over 40 years. And when I say on the fringe of show business, I had all my success and worked with some of the best people in the business. For example, Bill, what do Jay Leno, Ray Romano, Ellen DeGeneres, and Bob Saget have in common? They all work for me. (laughs) (laughs) And the reason it's on the fringe is I'm in the hotbed of Hollywood in Sacramento, California. So that's more on the fringe than okay. being in the heart of it. So you've been doing this for such a, such a long time, as you said, 40 years ago. What got you into it? Uh, well, that's a great story. And is I was pointing to my gray hair. Yes, I'm a, a much older gentleman and, and was blessed back in, don't be shocked, anybody, 1980, I opened up my first comedy club. It was the 12th full-time comedy club in the entire U.S., and I was very blessed to hook up with people like Gary Shandling and Bob Saget, Dave Coulier, Dana Carvey, who helped me start that club and really build it to the success it was. I ended up um, 
owning three clubs, uh, over 125 employees, and got a chance to work with everybody from the people I just mentioned, uh, uh, all the way to Soupy Sales, Pat Paulson, and Tommy Chong. So uh, just, just an amazing variety of talent. Uh, the short story of how it started was uh, I was a life insurance agent at the uh, quiet age of uh, 20 and didn't like it. And I was on vacation in L.A. My dad, who had a great sense of humor, said, you got to go check out this place called the Comedy Store. There's a little satellite operation by UCLA in Westwood. And I went with my then girlfriend, soon to be wife, soon to be ex-wife. And we had such a great time. And I met Dave Coulier that night. I saw Sandra Bernhardt, met George Wallace. And that was the um, beginning, the essence of the idea. I came back to Sacramento, quit my job, went bankrupt, and wheeled and dealed my <laughs> way into my first club. So I've, I've talked to actually many comedians who talk about their first days and working in these types of clubs. One of them is actually celebrating his 40th year as a comedy coach by the name of Neil Lieberman, who I spoke to a couple years back. And he said that that was the only place where they could actually break in new material was by being in front of small audiences in clubs like that you had. Right. It wasn't really a small club. Actually, I had one of the bigger ones. I sat over 200 people. Okay. But it goes back to being on the fringe of show business. It's definitely a truism, Bill, that people could come to my clubs and try out new material and not be worried that some producer or director sitting in the audience. So, for example, if you're a young comic and you're coming out from Boston or New York, and you're going to L.A., and you're going to the Comedy Store or the Improv or the Ice House, you have to always present your A material because there could be some TV producer or investor sitting in the audience that they could pick you for the golden ticket. Right. What was great about my clubs, and I had three of them in Sacramento and Stockton, uh, two in Sacramento, one in Stockton, was that they could, I always expected them to entertain the audience. So they had to bring their game, but they could break away from their standard A material and try out new material. For example, one time Gary Shandling, uh, you know, got the audience going, had proven himself and then said, hey, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to be doing the Tonight Show uh, next week and I'd like to try out some new material. And the audience loves being on the inside, kind of behind the curtain thing. And he literally, off of three by five cards, read off about 20 jokes or bits and then gauged the audience. And it was hilarious because most of it was really funny, but also there was a couple clunkers and he goes, oh, well, that's important, you know. <laughs> um, a few weeks ago, and I'm, I'm reading your information on your website, a few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of seeing Paula Poundstone in oh, the awesome. Pittsburgh area. And I've been following her for years. And I think it's interesting that the older the comedian gets, the more they start relying on their original material, because that is where they got started. Have you noticed the same thing? Well, one of the challenges, uh, and that's a great observation, Bill, is that comedy has changed. Not the comics per se, and really not even comedy, but the audiences have changed. It was, It is so much more challenging to go out and entertain this quote-unquote woke society and yes. everybody's so sensitive, right? Uh, back in the 80s and 90s, 
first off, it was like the rock and roll era of comedy. And it was the uh, crucible that so many famous people that we know now, you know, Ray Romano to Dana Carvey, uh, Kevin Nealon, Saturday Night Live, you name it, were able to, uh, you know, fail, able to bomb and still create and work and build their act. So great story about Paula Poundstone. I was one of the first clubs uh, that she worked, I think the first club that she worked out of her hometown of Boston. She's a Boston girl. She came out, heard about my club. She was an opening act. And Paula Poundstone was the only act in the 20 plus year history of my club that I allowed to work multiple weeks. And the reason was I really liked her and think she had a lot of potential, but quite frankly, she wasn't that funny. Her present, <laughs> she was quirky and yeah. funny, but her presentation to the audience wasn't that strong. And coincidentally, Gary Shandling was working uh, one of the weeks that she was the opening act and Gary kind of took her under her wing and helped her. And I worked with her on the presentation of her comedy. And Gary helped her on the writing and uh, the presentation. And by the end of those three weeks, she had really honed and learned her material. And then it wasn't soon long after that, she moved to San Francisco and met Robin Williams. And he really helped her develop as an entertainer. And of course, the rest is history. She's done uh, dozens of Tonight Shows and Letterman's and uh, had her own comedy specials, a very successful comedian. Um, what, what is interesting, and I'm looking at the, like you said, the golden age of comedy in the 1980s, that a lot of these comedians that you had were, I would call, I would say they were, um, they, they were, um, oh, I can't put the word together. They were, they observed human nature. They were dealing with that and finding what's humorous about human nature and then exploiting it to a point where the audience can relate to it or can laugh at it. And that is not like what we had prior to that, which were just knock down, fall down jokes. This was more of observation. Right. And uh, again, a very observant of you, Bill, you, you, you seem like you know the business. <laughs> um, no, it is so true that uh, before 1980, a lot of comedy was uh, sets uh, at the Hungry Tiger and places like that in San Francisco and in other clubs where comedy was either in the Catskills or it was used as a break between jazz bands or strippers at a strip club. Yeah. It wasn't really an accepted art form. And then um, uh, several uh, old school comics kind of kept working it. And then it in the late 70s, it really started to develop into an acceptable art form. So by 1980, when I opened, it really was, uh, like I said, I was the 12th club in the country. But by 1985, it was like Starbucks. There was a comedy club in every corner. I mean, it was crazy. Like every disco, because all the discos went away turned into comedy clubs, right? You know, right. first they were nightclubs, then they were discos, then they became comedy clubs. But what it did is afforded an opportunity for more people to give this unique art form it's a try. And out of that, we got some great talent. Now, what's interesting is there's several schools of comedy entertainment, but the ones that are the most successful, let's say, in my mind, get the golden ticket. To me, that means a TV sitcom 
or a special or something. And remember, this is before HBO and cable. There was three channels and you had to be clean to get on TV. So observational humor and probably the two best at it were uh, Jay Leno and Jerry Seinfeld. And guess what? Now they're Jerry and Jay. Everybody knows them, right? And it was the fact that they could do observational comedy clean and something, as you pointed out, is so important, relatable by the audience. A quick side story. I did several concerts with Jay Leno. And one of them, uh, the opening act was Yakov Smirnoff. I mean, this was before he was hot with the uh, Ronald Reagan era. But uh, Jay went on stage and did 90 minutes in this concert of straight monology and interacting with the audience. Mm-hmm. It is so hard to do five or 10 minutes of comedy. Imagine holding an audience, entertaining an audience for 90 minutes straight it was incredible to be a part of and see, and uh, there's there's a reason he's Jay Leno. I had the opportunity to see him um, probably around 1985, 86, and it was it was uh, at a university setting, and I went to the I went to the show with my then girlfriend, and we we watched him, and he was really new on the scene whenever he came back came back east. And I was always surprised, and I know you go for the sure thing, that he took The Tonight Show. Because to me, when he did The Tonight Show, he wasn't comfortable in that type of setting. Oh, yeah. No, finish your thought, because you're absolutely right. Because, I mean, of course, you're going to take the sure thing, and you're going to follow the legacy of Johnny Carson. But he just felt, he just seemed very awkward, and there seemed to be more people that could have done the job that did not come from a comedy background, like Letterman, who started in TV, who really wasn't a comedian. He held his uh, uh, comedian chops on television. And you start looking at everybody else that started in broadcasting before they got into humor. Well, uh, what interesting about Jay, and you were uh, very correct, the Tonight Show was something he couldn't turn down financially, and it right. was a huge career break for him. But he was never uh, as comfortable on the TV set, the set of the TV show, compared to a stage. Um, and the reason is that on a live stage, he was in control and he could uh, make a mistake or try something new. Once he felt he had the responsibility of the Tonight Show, especially following the amazing legacy of Johnny Carson, he was honed in by what you could do on TV. He wanted to be everybody's favorite person. He didn't want to risk anything. And I think all comedy is at its basics, a risk. You're trying to share something in hopes that the audience will relate and respond to it. And he really Uh, had to, he did like a 180 and was a different person on The Tonight Show. But what's interesting about that is as soon as he got free from that show, and I mentioned earlier how terrific uh, Jerry Seinfeld and Jay Leno are as stand-ups, guess what? Those are two of a very, very few. I mean, I've known thousands of comics, and these two multi-multi-millionaires have no reason in the world to go out and work. And guess what? Mm -hmm. They're both going out and doing stand-up comedy each and every week. Why? 
because they love it. Right. And I, I also look at your list. You work with Bob Saget and Dave Collier, which everybody knows them more from the TV program uh, Full House than they did from their comedy but Saget, when he started out, he was not the wholesome individual that everybody thinks he is. Oh, still isn't. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. I mean, have you seen the movie The Aristocrats? Yes. I mean, he um, uh, Saget has always been filthy. And what a lot of people don't know is he does a lot of musical comedy. In fact, on my website, Scott's Comedy stuff.com there's a video memorabilia uh, membership site you can go to and i've got lots of sets of bob saget doing music on stage but boy don't let your ender 15 year olds watch it because (laughs) uh he is incredibly dirty by the way we want to say really funny we're not saying right he drops f-bombs unnecessarily or something it's actually smart uh humor but it happened to be pretty risque even back in the 80s and even uh, to this day. What is uh, amazing about Mr. Saget, and I've been so honored to work with him many, many times. He was one of the key people that helped me start my club. Um, I've got uh, video and pictures in my book uh, of him and I working together on one of my early TV commercials for the club. And and I consider ourselves friends, even though we're not tight anymore. But back then, we spent a lot of time together. And... Bob is one of the few people, and I can't really name anybody else, that was able to be totally engaging and funny but dirty on stage and then flip a switch, and he was totally clean on Full House, totally clean on Fuller House. He was on America's Funniest Videos, one of the original hosts, and it was a little edgy there, but he was able to transform himself and adjust to that TV clean. And a lot of people, you know, Bobcat, Goldthwait, uh, there's, there's been a bunch that struggled yes. with their persona on stage in a live club versus TV. Yeah. Whenever, um, and was Saget and Collier friends before they got the show together or did that just happen afterwards? No, actually Saget got the show and he brought Dave in. Uh, okay. They were very close friends, worked my, club many times uh, together. In fact, in my book, there's a picture of us or on the website. I think you can see it. Uh, the three of us together on my stage for a New Year's show. Um, but quick, funny story that uh, only your audience is going to hear. I haven't shared this before on a podcast. Uh, I was, uh, we had had a show. Uh, Coulier was the featured act. Uh, Saget was the headliner. This is back in uh, late 1980. And the three of us are sitting down after the show, having a cocktail and just uh, uh, chatting. And uh, all of a sudden, I could see the two of them um, sharing like a secret laugh and and making each other crack up. And I was left out and I didn't like it. Right. <laughs> and I said, hey, come on, guys, I'm sitting right here. Uh, what's the joke? I hope it's not me. And Dave starts howling and pulls up this piece of paper and folded inside of a piece of paper was some lint from under the table. And Bob had written on there, David, here's some of my pubic hair just for you. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to understand comics to, to, you know, we see so much comedy that, right. it, you know, when we see a funny joke, we don't laugh necessarily out loud. We go, oh, that was good. 
But what makes us laugh is the totally absurd and bizarre. And uh, that was one of those moments where the two of them were just trying to crack each other up. When I when I look at the site, you make some um, you made a comment on here or you made a, a list on here of who's been on and one whose career has actually gone in a direction where I think she found more comfort doing a daily show was Ellen DeGeneres because Ellen started in that, in that cookie cutter um, fashion as a female stand-up comment, had a TV series, ended up coming out to the public that she was gay, doing her stuff there and then being put on a, a, a TV talk show that became a hit that no one I think ever thought would last that long, that she was really competing with the time frame that Oprah did her program. So it's really interesting to see that. And when Ellen started and you've worked with her, did you see that type of that determination in her when she started out? No. Uh, and that's a terrific question that hasn't been asked before, Bill. Uh, I could see why one-on-one is so popular. Uh, it, <laughs> Ellen was um, uh, interesting to work with. She was first off a feature act for me. So she was maybe making $300 for a week of work. She uh, was not standout funny. She was very hilarious. And uh, I would have picked her as kind of the female Jerry Seinfeld at the time. And that's a compliment in that her half hour set that she was doing for me was very down to earth, very relatable. At the time, there was nothing about being gay or anything controversial. Not that that's controversial these days, but this is back in the 80s. And uh, she was just really funny. But uh, the answer is no, she didn't seem Uh, spectacular at the time. Now, what I think is interesting is that somebody saw that spark in her. And like I said, this was when uh, there was kind of the rock and roll wave of comedy and people like Seinfeld and Saget were getting TV shows. I think somebody saw her, saw the same thing I did, that she was kind of a female Seinfeld or Leno, very relatable and very funny and offered her uh, the Ellen TV show and the series. And I think that's where she was actually felt once she proven herself, she felt free to um, uh, basically, as you said, come out. And then that kind of made her uh, a, a celebrity of sorts that, that she came out in such a social uh, open way. And the fact that she ended up being a tremendous talk show host, uh, really, I mean, I think it's amazing. And there was no way for us to see that back in the 80s, but uh, really proud of what she was able to do with her uh, career and her comedy. It's so interesting because I'm part of my podcast, a little plug, stand-up comedy, your host and MC. Uh, I've interviewed over 50 of the people that used to work for me, professional entertainers, and many of them, uh, took what they learned in stand-up comedy and being live on stage, but were able to direct it to other things, okay. whether, uh, you know, Ed Solomon is a, a movie, a comedy writer. Uh, Peter Galky is a TV uh, comedy writer. Um, 
I just did an interview with uh, Bob Ettinger, who ended up uh, being a showrunner and one of the important people behind the Jeopardy TV game show. So uh, they, they, they take their knowledge that they learned and were able to use it in other ways. Only a real few uh, were able to really stay or go into TV and come back to stand up. And we've already mentioned them, Jerry and Jay. Right. Bob Saget's back out on the road entertaining, but we're talking four or five comics over how many decades? I mean, it's it's uh, it's a pretty rare one percent. What's also interesting is the list you have up here. Bob Saget, Dave Coulier were on Full House. Gary Sandling had the Gary Sandling show um, and the Larry and Sanders show. Gary Sanders show. I'm sorry. And then Paula no, it was he had both. <laughs> uh, Paula Poundstone had a brief TV sitcom that lasted, I think, two episodes, but she was doing <laughs> she was doing her her comedy um, specials that she had for HBO. Right. Uh, comedy Carvey, Central and HBO. Dana Carvey ended up with Saturday Night Live. Um, and then the other ones you show on here, Pat Paulson, which was the internal political candidate. Soupy Sales was big in children's television and radio. And then Tommy Chong, the great part of Cheech and Chong, who was also on um, that 70s show. So, again, these people were able to translate a stand-up career, take it into TV, and then go back again. Because I know Dave Collier is doing stand-up still. He was recently in this area, too. But I think it's really interesting because the way we look at comedy today we are looking at it online and comedy. In my opinion, you have to experience it live. You can't get the full effect looking at a computer screen. You can't get a full effect watching a special on HBO. You have to be part of the room because sometimes those jokes fall flat. But when you're in a room with people, those jokes are hilarious because you're in that, that unity that you've developed with that audience that you're sitting with. And do you see after COVID and after the pandemic, hopefully we start to see this translate um, out of here in the next uh, three, four, five months, whatever it may be. Do you see comedy getting as big as it was before the whole thing happened? Well, uh, first off, I just want to say congratulations. You hit it uh, right on the nose. <laughs> Good job, Bill. Um Stand-up comedy is always better live. In fact, back in the 80s when I had my clubs, uh, Evening at the Improv came out. And a lot of people stayed home and watched stand-up comedy on TV. And it, was, it took away a, a bit of our audience for a little bit. But then right. people realized it's way more personal, way more engaging to see it live. Plus, there's the spontaneity that you never would get in a TV show where um, – uh, Dave Coulier or Dana Carvey might go off interacting with somebody in the audience and creative fun stuff that that only happens once is happening and you're there to experience it and share it. So uh, to all your listeners, if you get a chance, always experience stand up comedy uh, live at least once. You, you won't believe the difference because it's a shared energy in that club or room that you're in. Uh, going to your question, will it come back? I think the answer is yes. However, as I alluded to earlier, we're in a different societal position where, quite frankly, um, I don't like it. 
it, everybody's overly sensitive. You right. know, uh, I used to be, um, it was funny, it was pointed out by a comic in an interview recently that I probably had more stage time than any of those professional <laughs> comics because I was on stage six nights a week for 21 years, uh, two shows a night often. And I would talk to the audience and I would warm them up by, you know, picking on Sweater Boy or pointing right. out somebody's gray hair or, you know, who's married, who's on a first date, normal MC stuff. And these days, everyone's so uptight that if I picked on Sweater Boy, some person three tables over might go, oh, you might hurt their feelings, you know, and it's just it's it's a different world. And I think that'll change comedy. But I, I, I think that's interesting because when you buy that ticket, you should realize that you're working as part of a live event, that you may be the person that is going to be focused on. And I understand that there may be someone in the audience that may be offended. But the thing that gets me is if you're going to be offended over something that minor, then you shouldn't be there. That's what I think is very interesting. <laughs> That's what I think is very interesting about this. Because, like I said, uh, two weeks ago, I saw Paula Poundstone, and she never missed a beat because she was not only talking about, and, and again, it wasn't anything political. She was talking about people's careers, and she was asking them questions. There was a guy there that was that did lighting, and she goes, "Okay, so what lighting have you done?" And he talks about this play. That he does. And Paula goes, so is my lighting right? And she just goes off on this. And it is hilarious because she's not taking anything out of the ordinary. She's not misconstruing it. What she's doing is she's dealing with the moment. If an audience member can't understand that, then we have an issue. And I think you're right. I think there are people that are too sensitive. Well, and uh, you're right again, uh, Bill, that when you buy a ticket to it'd be like somebody buying a ticket to a boxing match and then saying, oh, they're hurting each other or, or, uh, you know, a football game. And, you know, he's being physically tough. I mean, if you go to a comedy club. No, you don't have to expect to be picked on, but you're I should say this. and, And I think your listening audience will agree. Stand-up comedy should be and was one of the last bastions of free speech. You could get up and say whatever and hopefully make it funny. And if you insulted, uh, uh, you know, somebody, an ethnic group or something, but it was all in fun, it's a joke, you have to be able to accept it that way. And I think what's challenging about today's audience is there's less people to, to accept the fact that, no, they're not really seriously picking on tall people or fat people. Right. It's, it's sharing something that we all see and experience and trying to make it funny. And it's not meant to hurt someone's feelings. But still, uh, it's, it's the certain portion of the audience that's overreading the situation, that's being overly sensitive. And I hope... And I think you'd back me up on this, that life is is a pendulum. I'm old enough to see things go back and forth. And right now we have the pendulum way up over here. And I I think it's starting to come back. People are starting to get tired of the COVID shutdowns. People are tired to get of some of this woke stuff. Someone's uh, people, I think, in general are getting tired of the oversensitivity of certain people. 
And hopefully that pendulum will come back and we can all get back to some uh, essence of normalcy. And that part of that uh, power to getting it back to normal, I think, is stand up comedy. Like you said, Paula wasn't pulling punches. She's she's going with the moment. And, uh, you know, it was I'm sure it was very funny. But uh, if somebody was offended or turned off by it, uh, to me, that's their problem, not the entertainers. And I also think if you've been following a comedian long enough, you have an idea of what's going to happen at that show. Oh, right. I mean, you know, if you're going to go see uh, a Bobby Slayton, the, the, the bulldog of comedy or, mm-hmm. or some of these others, that there is comics that have a more aggressive um, style or more audience interactive. But, you know, it's not a secret. That's who they are. That's their comedy. And, um, you know, like you said, if you're buying a ticket, buckle up. (laughs) Yes. Well, and let's go back even earlier than that. Let's go back in the 1960s and 70s when Red Fox was on the stage, Oh, which was he's not Fred Sanford like everybody thought he was. No, imagine Uh, Red Fox and some of those people in today's uh, community and what they were doing then is social commentary and comedy and, and Lenny Bruce, I mean, dealing with Lenny Bruce, even with Richard Pryor, uh, George Carlin, if he was still alive, how would he be reacting to what's going on right now? Well, what's interesting, you just named for the many people, but for the people that were the pioneers of stand up comedy and they were considered the bad boys of entertainment at the time. But Lenny Bruce got arrested over and over. And he guess what? He just went right back and kept doing it. And now he's uh, forever a legend for comedy. Uh, George Carlin, uh, the seven deadly words you can't say on TV. You know, they were trying to poke fun at society to get society to laugh at itself and some of its craziness and some of the weird rules and and barriers they try to put up to freedom of speech. But what they did allowed for that rock and roll wave of comedy in the eighties. But again, the pendulum has swung back and now we need people to be like Lenny Bruce and George Carlin and get back out there and kind of fight this sensitivity and get people back to like, Hey, we're all in this together. Let's laugh at ourselves. So if you had the opportunity, and I know you own the clubs, would you rather see a comedian in an arena type situation or in a club type situation? Uh, That's another great question. And I know people love going out to big arenas and and seeing a famous entertainer. uh, If you have your binoculars, because you don't really see them. One thing about stand-up comedy It is really an art form that's designed for a small stage, an intimate audience. I mean, even at 200 seats, uh, I was able to design my club kind of like a mini arena where everybody had a good view. Uh, But I've been in clubs that had 300, 350 seats. And even at that, the people in the back were losing that personal touch. Um, You need the intimacy of a small room to really share the experience and the energy that happens between an audience and an entertainer. And it's not just comedy. I mean, comedy is probably uh, the most relevant uh, to this conversation in something that really leans on that audience participation. But imagine a, a quartet or a singer or even a dancer that's performing for 100, 200 people versus 
10,000. It's just, it's just not the same. Um, But it is interesting because a singer and a dancer can come across in a movie or a TV show and you're not going to really lose too much. Why? Because they're performing and the audience is just observing. Stand-up comedy is all about that interaction. It really is the only art form where the entertainer, if they don't connect with the audience, there's nothing happening. So, and and again, I'm going back earlier than the 1980s. When you look at this, a lot of these comedians may not have been in the clubs, but they found another medium, which was the whole album vinyl situation where they were releasing stuff that couldn't be sold in front of the store that was sold in brown paper wrappers such as red fox's stuff but then you had a comedian like bob newhart who did the button down world of bob newhart which is again observational and it's hilarious well even uh yeah i'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt but uh okay even bill cosby uh there's there's a couple examples where there wasn't a club in every corner. Uh, It was regulated to jazz clubs and strip clubs. And these guys figured out we need to reach the public without having to go through a stripper, right? And the uh, album comedy was really the way that they were able to reach a mass market before there was a mass market like, you know, uh, TV and stuff that they could do. So, yeah, that's that's so true. Uh, I think some of the uh, uh, great original comedy is what you'll find on the two albums you mentioned and a few others. There wasn't a lot, though. I mean, keep in mind, uh, Bill, that back in those days, there was, uh, you know, five, ten entertainers that were trying to get through that uh, ceiling and, and get to the mass uh, public. And... Um, and then in the 80s, it went from, you know, maybe 50 working entertainers to thousands, what felt like overnight. Do you think, I mean, and I'm looking at the 1960s right now, that <laughs> <laughs> I was very young. I was like three. But I'm looking back to the 60s and I'm looking at these comedians that were coming out that did not have the club to perform on. But yet they had. Rowan and Martin's laughing. They had these type of programs. They weren't on for a whole show. They were on for three or four lines. The audience got a taste for them. And if they liked it, they went and searched for them. Do you feel that the way entertainment is now on TV, that it's too predictable that you don't have that idea of the, of the, the, the daily humor. I mean, Saturday Night Live is great but it's all skit and it's always their characters that are their their comedians they're dealing with, or they have one featured comedian. Do you think if we would go back to something like a Roan and Martin laughing or whatever it may be from that time period and introduce something like that today, maybe not on TV, maybe on Netflix or on the streaming services. Do you feel that that would change the way we looked at comedy? Yeah. It, 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 what you're doing is you're able to share and, and, uh, that entertainer with the public. And like you pointed out, the public's able to find the entertainer that relates to them. You know, some people like a certain type of comedy and and others like another type. And how are you going to know unless you can sample it? I think one of the biggest uh, changes of the last 20 years versus the 70s, 80s and 90s was 
we had all these platforms called talk shows, you know, uh, the Mike Douglas show, uh, of course, The Tonight Show, or even David Letterman. But, you know, uh, when Jay took over The Tonight Show, he didn't have that many comics on. Mm -hmm. And Letterman had more than him, but it was way less than the old days. You go back to Mike Douglas and some of the other daytime shows, a lot of people were able to cut their teeth and become quote unquote name acts or get some exposure because they could do a two or three minute bit on uh, a show like that. I mean, Ed Sullivan was the greatest example of a variety show where people had a chance to showcase a talent. And, you know, if the Beatles hadn't done that show, would have there been the Beatles? I mean, right. I, I am a huge fan. I think they would have, push through some way or another, but no one would argue that getting on the Ed Sullivan show didn't explode them in America. And that's very true because, and and now looking at the female comics, if it wasn't for Sullivan, who would have known who Joan Rivers was? Who would have known who Tody Fields was? And going through that list, because again, they were given that three minutes of exposure and Mike Douglas, Merv Griffin, Dick Cavett. These are programs that unfortunately the now generations have no clue who they are because they don't have that out there. The closest you may have had would be Ellen. Right. But right. she's only focusing on herself. She's not focusing on other, co- on other comedians. Or present, other musicians. Yeah. She doesn't present comics, but what's interesting is the talk shows today are all about life's drama and who, right. who slept with who and, and who did this to that. And, and it's just horrible entertainment i mean uh reality tv is has been one of the huge downfalls of society in my mind <laughs> I but agree. It, you 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 bring up a good point joan rivers was one of those early acts that helped break the ceiling and got comedy on the mainstream a quick side story um if you promise not to tell anybody bill okay but i was buddy. actually shushed by joan rivers <laughs> i was wow. i was at the comedy store in Hollywood and on stage was Gary Shandling and I was young and immature and Gary and I had been friends for years and I knew his act forwards and backwards. And I was in the club with uh, uh, an entourage of women and, you know, I wasn't really paying attention to Gary's set as I'm sitting in my upfront booth. I'm kind of chatting and trying to feel special in front of the young ladies like, you know, any jerk guy would do. And it was, I'll never forget, but from around the next booth, I see Joan Rivers come around. Shh. <laughs> and it's like, oh, crap, that was Joan Rivers. <laughs> yeah, if you get if you get shushed by her, you know you did something wrong. Yeah, That's oh, man, I was funny. put in my place. <laughs> so uh, I ended up apologizing to her and to uh, Gary um, but it was it was just one of those moments that uh, will be forever impacted in my mind. Uh, I never got a chance to actually work with Joan. She wasn't doing clubs by that stage. But uh, um, that was my uh, touch of fame with Joan Rivers. <laughs> so with all the comedians you worked with over the years, is there any that stand to mind that we may not have mentioned that that actually flew under the radar that really didn't get that exposure that these other ones did. 
I'm so glad you asked that, Bill. There's actually dozens that made a great living in comedy. Steve Bruner is still out uh, working clean and working funny, working mm-hmm. like uh, Jerry. He just never got the golden ticket. Um, Mark Yaffe is out there doing it. Uh, uh, Tim Bador was another clean, very funny guy that got to start at my club and had a good long career in comedy and radio. Uh, Will Schreiner, of course, he got his own show, so I guess he doesn't count. But I mean... There's been a lot of them, but uh, I did want to uh, share that the person that I think he actually is famous, but you and I don't know him like, you know, Ray Romano or or Ellen, but one of the funniest guys, and I can never say the funniest because I got to work with the best, but one of the funniest that his name doesn't necessarily uh, chip off the tongue is Larry Miller. Now, everybody in your audience, go out and Google Larry Miller, and you go, oh, that guy. He's been in over 100 movies. He was the suck-up guy in Pretty Woman. Uh, He's done stage comedy year after year. Very, very funny guy. Was one of the funniest guys ever on my stage, but he wasn't a joke teller per se. He would tell stories, a 20-minute story, and have the audience on the floor all the way through it. And even though he's done 100 TV shows and movies – he is not, quote unquote, a one name famous guy like Seinfeld or Leno. Larry Miller, everybody, check it out. Well, the funny thing is, I'm looking at him going, oh, that guy. <laughs> he, oh, was on, he was on Law and Order SVU. I mean, <laughs> he was on he the Monk him. show several times. Hilarious, but a great actor. Um, yeah. He always thought of himself, he was a tremendous stand up comedy. Uh, he and Jerry Seinfeld and, um, uh, Mark Schiff were part of the, uh, and Paul Reiser were the funniest men in the universe back in uh, New York in the late 70s, early 80s. They had a little club and they're all still very good friends. But, um, and Larry was just a tremendous stand up comic, but he always saw himself as an actor. In fact, yes. he was one of the few stand up comics that would put on theatrical makeup to go out and entertain a comedy club audience. Wow. And, at the time, I thought it was a little strange, but I was young and naive, and he took his art very seriously, and that uh, compulsion to be good is what led to all of his TV and movie experiences. Because I, and I, when I've seen him work, I could actually see if he would have focused on comedy, I actually could see him bigger, being bigger than Seinfeld. Because his delivery is just so deadpan that it's you're trying to find where the joke is. You know it's there, but you got to figure out where it's at. And that's that to me is a thinking man's comic right there. Yeah, no, you you nailed it. He's definitely a, a strong comedy writer. And if somebody wanted to uh, see his material from back in the eighties and nineties, uh, my uh, membership site through my uh, website, scottscomedystuff.com, uh, has some actual video of these guys, Coulier, Saget, and, and Miller, uh, and Leno on stage before they were really household names. But uh, ha- hopefully your audience will do the same as you and Google Larry Miller and check him out because he is one of the funniest people in the universe. <laughs> now, another one I wanted to ask you if you worked with, did you ever work with Norm MacDonald? No, actually, I never got the pleasure. In fact, I have not met him. Uh, obviously, I've always been a fan. He has a kind of a deadpan delivery, uh, similar to Kevin Nealon, who yes. uh, wasn't like a joke guy. Kevin worked for me for many years. 
he was never, I would say, one of the funniest guys on stage, but he always entertained and he was always uh, unique and different. And I think that's why he was a, a success on Saturday Night Live. Oh, that reminds me, a quick side story, Bill, that you might enjoy. Um, I told you Dana Carvey uh, used to work for me bef- long before he was famous. He was playing the song Chopping Broccoli live on yeah. my stage with his, <laughs> he and his brother had a band. Uh, I could send you the video. But um, I was actually sitting in a jacuzzi with him uh, uh-huh. on a, a Thursday night after a show. And he had just gotten the call from Lorne Michaels asking him to fly to New York and try out for Saturday Night Live. And to be there at that moment, he was so excited and so nervous at the same time because he was a, you know, a a small time comic out of the Bay Area. And he had been heard of and seen. And Lorne Michaels called him personally and said, we'd like to see you in New York. And uh, to be able to share that with uh, Dana uh, was uh, just again another life-altering moment. I was going to ask you: Did he enter? Did Did you see the church lady before we saw it on Saturday Night Live? Yes, church lady. You know what? A lot of people don't realize is uh, any comic, Seinfeld, Leno, Carvey, Saget. When you see them doing something on TV or on a show, they're not just making that up for the first time. They have worked and honed that comedy bit for months, if not years, to get it exactly right. And the church lady had come out long before Saturday Night Live, just like Chopping Broccoli or the McDonald's <laughs> uh, Burger King song. I mean, there's there's uh, several examples of uh, people doing that. Jerry Seinfeld happened to be working, scheduled at my club, when they offered him the Seinfeld Chronicles, which was the official first pilot year for the Seinfeld show. And uh, he was such a professional that after he'd done a year of that show, uh, he knew he owed me a date. He came back and worked for the same money that we had contracted uh, previously and worked my club after he'd gotten that shot on the uh, Seinfeld Chronicles uh, season one of his show. Um, But what's interesting is the uh, Seinfeld show, a lot of the basics, especially the first couple of years, were bits of his that got turned into mm-hmm. basically comedy skits, but in the form of a TV sitcom. I mean, uh, a genius writer. And as I mentioned, he's still out performing today because he loves stand up comedy. Do you think a show about nothing would make it today? <laughs> well, uh, I would have to say no. Uh my wife is constantly frustrated with the fact that it doesn't seem like there's ever an original thought right. out of uh, Hollywood. Everything's a remake of something else, some to just a ridiculous level. Uh, uh, there's exceptions, of course, like uh, uh, Murder in the Building and Ted Lasso, but those aren't even on network. You know, they had to be done right. by uh, other uh, companies. Um, <clears throat> it A show about nothing was really... Um, people counting the producers, and this was, you know, he ended up being a producer but and, and the owner of the show. But in the beginning, it was people understanding how good a writer Jerry was. And that, as you pointed out early in this interview, his talent for engaging an audience with totally common, making the total everyday stuff funny. Great example. One of his early bits, and I'm going back to 1980. 182. Jerry was talking to the audience and he goes, 
what's with men's pajamas? They're like designed like a suit. There's a breast pocket. I got a collar. I got cuffs. What's that all about? And it was hilarious because even though probably most of the people in the audience didn't wear pajamas like that, they'd either seen them on Dick Van Dyke or their their own dad or their grandfather. And Jerry bringing it out and poking fun at it, everybody could relate to. And, And how many people could actually you know, get two minutes or three minutes of material from men's pajamas. Exactly. And it was relatable. <laughs> That's like going back and looking at what Ray Romano did for oh, right. Everybody Loves Raymond. And one of the routines, I just talked to a friend about this the other day, is when he gets back from a trip and leaves the suitcase on the steps because he doesn't want to put it away and his wife doesn't either. And then he throws a tuna fish sandwich into the suitcase because he feels he's getting even with her because he forgot it was his clothes. So it is, it's relatable. It's what we deal with in a daily, on a daily basis in a lot of our families and a lot of our situations and a lot of our, um, our work lives that we, uh, that we do. Yeah. Well, Ray Romano and his, the success of his show, Everybody Loves Raymond, is obviously based on his comedy material, which, much like uh, Leno and Seinfeld, was able to uh, be relatable to the audience because it was everyday stuff. Uh, Jerry was kind of focused on just life in general, from flying right. to clothes and stuff. Uh, Leno was really good at that as well. But Ray, a lot of his material um, was uh, a, a lot about family and his unique childhood and that he brought that on stage in his material. And that's what converted into the TV show. Uh, A lot of those early episodes, uh, even though he had a team of comedy writers were based on his early Mm -hmm. comedy bits. And again, I don't think we'll, we'll ever see programming like that again, because um, I don't know if the comedians are the same, if the way it's being presented is the same, but those are classics. From Seinfeld to to even Full House, even to Everybody Loves Raymond, because it was a different time. Yeah. And and, and life has changed and comedy is a mirror of life. And what you and I grew up with, uh, I'm a lot older than you, but what we grew up in the 50s and 60s and 70s is a world away from how kids are growing up. In the 90s, I'm sorry, the 2000s, 2010s, 2020s, it's, it's, you know, and that's why things are different. And it's pretty bad. What I watch on TV now is 40 years old. So that's basically. (laughs) Well, me as well, because the classics are, you know, that's one of the, you know, I don't want to take this too long. But what's interesting is the shows that we grew up with, and, and Dick Van Dyke's a great example. That stuff is still funny today. Right. You put on a Dick Van Dyke show to a bunch of 10-year-olds, and they're going to laugh just as hard as we did back in the 60s when that came out. Yeah. I mean, that's the the power of quality comedy. Well, and that's the same thing. The one I was relate, referring to was MASH because it's still oh. relatable to today's situations. How well, funny is it? A, oh, go, I'm sorry. Go ahead. There's one or two we can't show because all in a family you could not get away with in 2021 yeah but i mean i think it's i was just going to say mash is a great example of a tv show that outlasted the war you know i mean (laughs) i mean what are the odds right but that's what comedy uh quality comedy writing but you're right there are some shows uh uh, i mean even sanford and son people would find offensive and yes they have to remember at the time 
it was a, a breakthrough opportunity to have an all black family TV sitcom. Yeah. And now they would not look at it that way. They would look at it as uh, a persecution, which is just ridiculous. But anyway, that's it's, we don't want to get political. Same thing as, as uh, Freddie Prince and Chico and the man. You would not oh. see that today. No, no, no. You're yeah. You know, you're making fun of the Hispanics. Yeah. No, they were raising up and making the Hispanics part of society in that right. show. But, you know, again, it's all about the perspective. So the, the big question my audience is going to ask is, what does the R stand for? <laughs> uh, my name's Robert Scott Edwards. I was okay. named for an uncle that had passed away from a horse accident. And but I was uh, Scott was my mom's favorite name. And that's what I was raised at. And it always it was so funny back in school. The teachers would get in front of the class and go, Bob. Bob. And I was like, who the hell's Bob? Right. I'm Scott. But anyway, um, but I appreciate you having me on, Bill. This has been uh, so much fun. I hope your audience gets a chance. Check out my website, uh, scottscomedystuff.com. Oh, can I can I tell them about my book? Yes, please. Hey, I just came out with a book. You can get it on Amazon. It's available uh, for your Kindle. Uh, the actual hard uh, soft copy covers will be available in a couple weeks. But uh, you don't have to wait because you're listening to One on One with Bill Alexander. If you email me at scottscomedystuff at gmail.com, that's scottscomedystuff at gmail.com, I'd be happy to send you a free copy of my book, 20 Questions Answered About Being a Stand-Up Comic. And if you have any interest in getting on stage, this will take you from being an open mic amateur to a professional. Scott, it was a pleasure. I would love to have you back on again because I'm sure we could do another hour or two without even thinking about it. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And and what's nice, Bill, is that uh, uh, you're you're really good at what you do. You ask some great questions and and thank you for uh, having me on. Well, Scott, thank you very much. And I'm glad you were able to join me today. Oh, my pleasure. Bye bye. A big thank you to Scott Edwards for joining me today here one-on-one with Bill Alexander. Had a blast. Had a good time. Hopefully you did too. Please share this with your friends. And again, if you email him, you'll get a free Kindle copy of the book, 20 Questions Answered About Being a Stand-Up Comic, which will be available in paperback on Amazon next month. Also, don't forget to check out his website, which is Scott's comedystuff.com and you'll be able to see a lot of the people he talked about and a lot of the things that he shared with us on the program so once again thank you very much to scott edwards for joining me today and i just got word right before this interview that gilligan bob denver's wife dreama will be joining me here in the near future so stay tuned we're going to be talking about gilligan's island All right here on One on One with Bill Alexander. Have you? 
Have you guys noticed that you can't go anywhere without seeing designer this or designer that, even designer furniture? On my social feeds and celebrity homes, it's everywhere. Have you seen how expensive these are? Well, if you want the sofa or recliner or bed that broke the internet, you don't have to go broke to get it. Because Designer Looks Furniture has all the same styles and trends, but without the designer prices. Oh, and they're well-made, too. It's the whole package. Check them out. Designer Looks at Value City Furniture or designerlooks.com. Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that... That's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton.